Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Another good morning to you. My name is Ryan, one of the pastors on staff. It's a delight to have you with this morning. And if you're new to Covenant Pres, and maybe this is first or second time checking us out, or also maybe you're not a Christian and you want to know more about what it looks like to follow Jesus, I'd love to be able to help answer some of those questions for you after our our service either today or sometime in the near future. We're taking a look at John's gospel, and so I want to invite you to go ahead and open there. And as we're doing so, uh, so that I stay on the clock, I'm going to grab my stopwatch so I don't forget this, okay? So anyways, we're looking at John chapter 18, and I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible there this morning. You can read in the bulletin there as well. We've been working through the first, really the first bit of the book, in chapter 17, the last several weeks, has been focused on a prayer that Jesus has been praying. But now that prayer has ended. He's walking out from the room that he was praying in. And we learn now of these last few details of Jesus's life before he is crucified, died, and buried. Today we see his betrayal and his arrest, the title of the sermon today. And so I really want you to see this today as being an important part, not only of this very moment, but what it means to be a Christian as well. That word betrayal is important for us this morning. And I wonder if you can look back on a time in your life and remember a time when you betrayed someone or perhaps where you were betrayed. And I know that I can, it pains me to have to think about that at times. And maybe it's too hard for you to think about this morning. And I get that, but I hope today that you'll see that God has a beautiful way of handling all our betrayals, betrayals as large as Judas's himself. And so what would it mean for you today to have resources to deal with your own betrayals and the ways that you have been betrayed? I'm so glad that you're here this morning uh, and that these are the questions that the text will give to us. For our children today, I wanna invite you to listen for a story of when I was a kid. And I also want you to listen for, if you can tell me what this cup that we're gonna read about, what this cup is all about. So if you're able, will you please stand following along with me there in the text, and I'll read uh, from John chapter 18. Hear now the reading of God's Word. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you, whom do you seek? And they said, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was spoken to fulfill the word that he has, that this was set to fulfill the word that he had spoken rather. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Will you please be seated and pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would show us Jesus and that you, Spirit, would come to do that. We know that this text will be of no benefit to us unless you come and help. So in a very real sense, we wait on you this morning. We come in here from all over the map, some of us knowing you for a long time, longing to hear from you, others of us wrestling deeply with our faith, and so we have questions of you, and ask, Lord, that no matter where your grace finds us today, that you would come and you would minister to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would hear this word, that we would accept it, and that we would bear fruit as you have asked us to do, and that in doing so, you would minister to each of our needs today. Father, we pray this through Christ, our risen King and our Good Shepherd. Amen. Well, when I was about six years old, uh, my criminal rap sheet begun. Um, I was the only, there was, I was, we were, I went shopping uh, with my brother and my dad to the only Target around this one over here on uh, White Bridge Road. And after, when we were in the store, uh, it was there standing before some G.I. Joe figurines that I got a case of the sticky fingers. And uh, I took a little toy backpack that was laying out on the shelf, a little backpack for a G.I. Joe figure. And when we got into the car, my dad saw me playing with it, with it and he asked, well, where did you get that, Ryan? And then before I could build my case and spin my story, uh, my kid brother spoke up. Oh, he took it from Target. I saw him. Ratted out, snitched out, all these fraternal claims of solidarity, they just evanesced right before my eyes. But I want you to know too, in that same event, I saw another set of eyes. The eyes of my dad, who had always been exceedingly generous with me. I saw where my betrayal had hurt him. For a few pennies worth of Hasbro plastic, I had broken my dad's heart. Now just so you know, I returned the part of the toy that day to the store immediately underneath the strong guidance of my dad. And I learned that day something of what is spoken here in John 18. That in a moment's notice, I was betrayed and betrayer, sold out and selling out, the former appropriately, the latter madly. And thankfully, my father used all the authority at his disposal to show me severity and kindness that day. That was what I most hated and most needed at the exact same time. And friends, John 18 this morning is showing us how Jesus responds to the deepest betrayal ever known, that by Judas. And though our names aren't Judas, his shoes fit us. For every single one of us has at some point looked at the Lord of life, and though he has done nothing wrong, we have sold him out. We've sold him out by saying something to the effect of, I want nothing to do with you. And his response, when we see it, is something that actually heals the offense that necessitated it. And that is what I want us to see this morning, right here from John 18, where John will show us and his, show us Christ's unique authority as God himself and how he uses that authority. So let's begin this morning by taking a look at this claim of authority that I'm looking at in verses two to six and then verse eight. First of all, the claim of Jesus's authority. Look with me again. Jesus has gone out of the garden, hasn't he? And he's there met by officials and one of his closest disciples, Judas, who we've not heard from since John 13, where he has left that group of disciples at the Last Supper. Jesus asks them in verse four, this group of officials, 
whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And then again, down in verse six and in verse eight, we see the same repetition, the same way of speaking that I am he, three times in total. And this gets emphasized precisely because of what John wants us to see about who Jesus is. And by seeing who he is, seeing the way that he uses and the way he claims his authority over everything, how do we know this? Well, that English translation there, what we read in the ESV, is a very good one. But the actual Greek has just two words, not three. It does not have I am he. It has the simple phrase, I am. And I want you to notice that our English is not wrong when it says that. It's just that the particular way of phrasing this is deeply embedded into John's theology throughout his letter. You might remember from John chapter 8 where he is arguing with the Pharisees earlier in this letter about their divine, their claim they, said they think to Abraham. Jesus speaks to them and says, before Abraham was, I am. But that itself is a call hearkening all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, where you might remember God's raised up deliverer Moses there is speaking to this bush that's on fire. And out of that bush, a voice comes. And that voice says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, well and good, when I go, who should I tell them is sending me? And you remember what God says. You tell them that I am, that I am is sending you. And so friends, what I want you to begin to see here is that Jesus is taking up this claim. He's revealing his divinity as it were, but not just in the words that he's saying. You see the subtleties of this text show us as well something else, that Jesus is claiming divinity with more than his words. John puts on Jesus's, in, uh, Jesus's utter control of the situation by showing us a bit of Jesus' intentions and thought life. You'll notice in verse one, it says this, when Jesus had spoken these things, he went out with his disciples to the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And then you'll notice again in verse four that seeing that all that would happen to him, he continued to go into the garden. He knew what was coming, friends. He knew the arrest, he knew the kiss of Judas, he knew the desertion of all of his closest friends, the trumped up charges, the kangaroo court, his suffering and his wrongful death sentence. All of this he knows is coming and he does not turn the other way and go. But he goes right to it. And therefore, both by these actions and his words, we see Jesus is claiming authority and control over this whole tragic farce as he has just said with the words, I am, that I, Jesus, I have no beginning, I have no end, I depend on no one or no thing for my being whatsoever, and in fact, all of existence relies on me for its upholding together. That one, the same one who sent Moses to deliver, the, uh, deliver from Pharaoh, this one is now sent out into the garden to do a work that no one could imagine. And as others have bet better than me have said before, that this is a claim that no other founder of any religion would ever make. They may say there is a way to God and I've come to show you that. Or they may say, I've come to show you what the virtuous life looks like through living out a series of moral or spiritual principles. But to make a claim of divinity, of godness, if you will, no one says that. And in fact, Jesus doesn't come and say that. 
Jesus comes and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so you begin to see now that this man is making a claim that no one else makes. C.S. Lewis famously shows us how Jesus backs each of us into a corner, forcing us to decide who he is with these sorts of words. Not only is there no other stream, you might remember that from a few weeks ago, but Lewis points out that there really only are two options for dealing with Jesus, two options that each one in this room must be able to deal with. You can either, as Lewis says, shut him up for a fool and kill him as a demon, which as we'll see is going to happen, or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. Those are your options. These soldiers and officers and Judas, they pick the former and they are flattened because of it. One pastor puts it this way, when you encounter God, it's always disturbing. It's always disturbing to encounter the living God because it necessarily means that you are meeting with the one who you've been rebelling against your whole life. How could you possibly stand in such an encounter? I mean, read of Ezekiel, read of Isaiah, read of Job, read of Peter, read of John, and see how their legs are turned into jello when they come into contact with the living God. More importantly, what happens when they and when we stand back up, you would think they would say, wait a second, okay, whoa, let's stop the whole show here. What are we doing? But they don't. They have seen the Lord of life, They know of his ministry. Malchus, for Pete's sake, has just had his ear chopped off, then put back on, and none of it makes him stop. None of them. They just keep marching forward. And I want you to see, too, that there's more than bewilderment in this scene. That what happens in the garden is is something that is fantastic for those who are spiritually worn out who are moral failures themselves, and who have made a mire of their lives and of others. This I am, this I am that we're learning of today is like water in a dry desert for those who know the sawdust of their own spiritual performances, whatever species they may be, friends. Why? Because this man, soon to be cuffed and led away, is telling us that God came for us. That's the claim within the claim. It's not just that Jesus is God, though that is true. It is that Jesus is God in this garden, giving himself up to be killed in the most scandalous of executions, precisely so that lost sons and daughters like you and me who cannot find their way home, have home come to them. And that's profoundly good news for us. How does this happen? John shows us how Jesus actually uses that authority, but it isn't in the way that you'd expect. And so I wanna look secondly at a second feature of this authority, and that is the cup of his authority. And I'm looking now at verses eight to 11 as we wind down the, uh, round out the text rather. You remember the scene, the officers have come to arrest Jesus, Judas leading the crew. And this band of soldiers is really a technical term for a Roman cohort of about 600 men. Now certainly less came, but probably no less than 150, 200 or so. And don't miss this, the Jewish authorities came out too. That is the officers from the chief priests. So you just have to imagine all of these soldiers, all of these officers showing up 
to quell any rebellion that might happen with Jesus and some of his followers, both Jew and Gentile authorities colluding together to arrest Jesus. And many commentators say that this puts the whole world complicit in the, uh, implicating, uh, and implicated in Jesus' death. And since they're looking for Jesus, Jesus says in verse eight, if you seek me, let these men go. That's a very important, you can circle that or underline it in your bulletin because that word there to let these men go, it's, it's literally the word forgive these men, let them go. And throughout the New Testament, that's what that word means. It is to let go, it is to let set free. And I just want you to begin to see how Jesus is using the authority his, 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 his claim on divinity, how he is using it. But Jesus continues. The releasing of the 11 is ironic. Did you catch it? Because it's in their release that they're kept by Jesus. I'll read it again. So, so this tells us in verse nine, this was spoken to fulfill the word he has spoken. Of those whom you gave to me, I have not lost one. These were given to him by his father, John 17, two and his work preserved them forever. But Peter, he's not gonna take it lying down, see what happens there with him. He draws a sword, likely a dagger of some short sort, and he slices off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Luke tells us that Jesus heals Malchus even as Malchus is arresting him. And I just, that image just stopped me dead in the tracks this week. To think of Jesus putting your ear back on as you're going after him to arrest him. Beautiful image. And he tells Peter that his arrest is part of, here it is, the cup that he must drink. And these two things, the release of God's people, of Jesus' people, and the cup highlight a very important theological theme for the rest of John. And, that it, and really what it means to be a Christian. The cup, you see, is Jesus talking not about a literal cup, something you just you know, sip out of, but instead it's an Old Testament image of receiving something, sitting down at a meal and drinking it in. In the Old Testament, the cup could be something positive, like in Psalm 23, cup of blessing, but it could also be a cup of cursing, which is exactly what it refers to here. You might remember from Matthew, Jesus is praying in the garden and he asks his father, oh father, would you please let this cup pass from me? It is the cup of suffering. It is the cup of God's wrath against sin that Jesus will suffer, that he will drink. And what's the point? Jesus is using his authority by faithfully drinking the cup of suffering. The suffering that begins here in the garden and will go all the way to Golgotha where he will die by the close of the next day. This cup drinking is what releases, what sets free, what forgives all of those who have been given to Jesus by the Father. And friends, that's you and that's me if you look to Jesus by faith today. You see, what we see here is the principle of substitution. Jesus for us in our place and we being released from the penalty that our sins deserve. What happens here physically is a pointer to what happens with us spiritually because Jesus will die, we are set free. But the cup means more. It means more than being just set free. I wonder if you caught it. It's not just that they're set free. Look again at verse nine, I already read it. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. So do you realize what this means? 
The cup that Jesus drank means not just that we're set free, it means we can't be lost. We can't be lost. And this, brothers and sisters, takes us one of the greatest promises in the gospel, that Jesus secures forever those whom he loves. Those whom Jesus has called and justified, Romans 8, 30, he will see all the way home. So yes, it is true that Christians sin, but they hate sin. And it is true that Christians doubt, but their faith seeks understanding. And it is true that Christians are not perfect. In our struggle against sin, we're reminded that we need a savior, and all of that's true. And here's what else I want you to know, that Jesus holds weary and weak Christians right in the palm of of his hand, and he loves us, and he holds us in such a way that not even our own belief can get us out. That's the promise that he won't lose us. And that promise is meant to give us the deepest of assurances. If we'll take our eyes off of ourselves and not trust in how well we are doing at any given moment. In many ways, I know that I'm opening up a can of worms that I could spend the next hour up here explaining with far too many important questions than time will permit. But I'll just say this this morning that the promise of Jesus keeping us is never ever meant to be a license for sin, but instead it's a deep encouragement when we fight against it. An illustration, imagine you go to calculus two on your first day of your first semester at school in college. And the teacher opens class by saying, class, Everyone is passing this class, day one. Not because you've earned it, but because I love giving passing grades. Some of you are F students, but not in here. Here you'll pass. And also many of you will find the material so hard as we go from August to December that some of you will wanna quit. But when you feel like doing that, when you feel like things are tanking, remember that you will pass because I said so. And when you feel like things are tanking, and I want you to know that the certainty of your passing grade is given to you to be an encouragement to keep you going as you want to quit. Now listen, in many ways, this is how Jesus' keeping of us works to keep us. It's how he works in and through us by his promises. And this has profound power to sustain us when our sin feels like it's killing us, or when our unbelief rolls in with foggy clouds that just never seem to lift. In sum, the cup of Jesus tells us that Jesus used his authority and he suffered to secure us. And any who trust in him are his forever and ever. They can't be taken away. How in the world could this possibly be so? I'll answer that question as I close. The law in Hancock County, just up by the Virginia border, had quite a challenge on their hands in the late 1800s. Mahala Mullins was a moonshiner who lived some 16 miles back off of any road at the time where she distilled her famous black tiger, as it was called. She had multiple warrants for her arrest but the law could never bring her in. And that wasn't because they didn't know where she was. 
It wasn't because they didn't know where she lived, they did. And it wasn't because they didn't know what she looked like, they did. It was literally because they couldn't bring her in. Mahala, you see, weighed 550 pounds. One constable said, she's catchable, but not fetchable. <laughs> in, a really, in a very real sense, she was too big for the law, and she was in fact reported saying once, take me if you can. Do you know that line right there, law, take me if you can, are your words because of Jesus. Having swallowed up the cup of God's punishment for you and for my sin and your sin, the law has no more power to bring you in. You're catchable, you can continue to sin, but you're not fetchable. The penalty has been paid. And the weight of God's glory, a glory given to you by Jesus, as we saw last week from John 17, 22, the glory, Jesus says, that you, Father, have given me, I have given them. That glory, that glory for you makes you too big for the penalty of the law. Take me. Take me if you can. And I want you to know who has the power to say that. Betrayers betrayers. That's the promise of the gospel, friends. So today, here, Jesus is before you, not in person, of course, not in a garden, but here in his word. Don't you see him opened up before you today? Like those officers see him. But instead, I don't want you to look at him and scorn him and walk away, but instead take him. Take him by faith. Believe in him. And live, brothers and sisters, and live. He drank the cup for you. This is the gospel from John 18. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would take these things that we have heard from your word, that you would press them into our hearts, into our lives. That we would catch a glimpse of the cup that has been drained for us because of what Jesus has done for us. And Father, we're, we're sorry at our betrayals, our many and micro-betrayals of you, our King. We ask that you would heal us and that you would restore us once again to your Son. Help us now, we pray, to live for him, our Good Shepherd. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres.com.